Hi everyone, my name is Nick Wood, Head of Investment Fund Research at Quilt Achievement. Welcome to the latest edition of the Fund Buy, the podcast for all things related to the world of fund research. This week, we have next in our series of big three interviews, featuring some of the best known investors and experts in our industry, asking the big three questions in their part of the investment world. And today we're focusing on one of the long-term themes for the next decade, namely the energy transition. Um, and we've got Mark Lacey joining from Schroders, someone who's spent his career investing in both the traditional energy industry and the energy transition. So thanks so much for joining us today, Mark. Um, it's a real pleasure. Um, before we get into the world of, of energy, um, perhaps you could just give the listeners some insights into your path into the investment world. Yeah, morning, Nick, and morning, investors. Um, so I think the first thing I have to say is um, I was very, very lucky. I think anyone who gets into this profession and has a sustained period um, in this profession is very, very lucky. I started in um, 1996, but my luck started in 1994 when I basically did a placement year with Northern Trust. And, and prior to going to Northern Trust on that placement year, in my mind, I always wanted to be an accountant. Um, so you can see I completely lack any personality traits, which is someone who wants to socialise with me. But ultimately, um, in 1996, I was offered a job um, at Credit Suisse. Um, started off as a deposit dealer, but then I um, was sitting very, very close to Bill Mott, who's a very well-known investor in the industry, big value bias investor, lovely, lovely person, uh, and also Neil Gregson. And um, they brought me into the investment area. Um, and in 1998, I was uh, had my own little energy fund and I was uh, being mentored uh, by those two two people. And I was being really I was being mentored by lots of people at Credit Suisse. And uh, you know that really started my investment career, looking at energy markets in detail. And as I say, I've done that for now over 26 years, coming up for 27 years in that in that area. Great. Thanks, Mark. I, uh, I was find it fascinating. I, so so many investors mention, um, I, I guess, both uh, sort of luck and judgment. So uh, you're, you're another on them, but uh, in, interesting background. Um, so so I mean, we I briefly touched upon sort of where you invest uh, in the uh, uh, in the intro, but but could you just give a, a summary of the the funds you're involved with, uh, just how you think about investing, and and also maybe I mean the the the, the question I often ask, you know, what, where do you see your edge in, in this particular market? Yeah, I, th I think it's hard to, uh, you know, just come out quite so, cr straight away and say, oh, I've got an edge. I've got an edge. Because uh, if, you, if you had an edge, you'd capitalise on it and we wouldn't be having this um, interview today, Nick. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, investing and generating sustainable alpha for clients is hard work. And it requires hard work and it requires a huge amount of due diligence at the company level. You know, what you have to do is speak to companies. But what we do um, at Schroders and what I do, what my team does, I want to stress it's not just me, it's the team that I manage that do that, is we, we run three strategies that sit within Global Thematics, um, which is basically the Global Energy Transition Fund, um, the Global Energy Fund, traditional global energy. I know we'll talk about that later on in, in the interview as well and the, the Sustainable Food and Water Fund. And, um, and and when we think about investing, and I think this is lost on some people still to this day, is you can't forget that what you're doing is you're taking an ownership stake in a company. So you are effectively the owner 
of the company, along with other people. Um, but when you have that ownership stake, um, you should be very aware of what's going on at the operational level for the company and also at the market level for the company before you even think about buying. So you're taking a stake in a company in, in effectively that, that sector, you're on top of um, that, that, those market dynamics. And that, that's so important for when you take a stake in a company because I, I'll repeat this probably quite a few times in this recording, patience is absolutely key when you take an equity stake in a company. And you know, you'll never ever get the same level of transparency as a minority holder in public markets. I think everyone is aware of that. But it's that communication with the company management teams that gives you that basically that ability to make sure you can intrinsically value that company well. Um, now, what's the edge? I, I don't I don't think we have this, as I said before, this um, golden egg approach that we've cracked it in terms of edge, because I think you have to change your investment philosophy over time, depending on the market, whether you're in a net investment period or a net divestment period in those industries. It's very, very important you recognise when you're going through the, that cyclical phase of those individual industries. But I think what underpins our, our investing is, is basically a simple and disciplined valuation process. And I know a lot of fund managers will talk about this, and a lot of fund managers that are good fund managers absolutely stick to it. You know, you read all the stuff with Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett, you know, they stick to their valuation process through and through. They don't deviate. Um, and the same with John Bolton, you know, at Fidelity, he did exactly the same thing. What we do is we just run a normalised return DCF calculation, i.e. what's priced into the equity. Um, are you buying this equity implying that it can generate 14% returns into perpetuity or are you, are you buying it on the basic return? It can return 50% returns into perpetuity. And obviously, if you're buying it on 50% returns into perpetuity, there's a huge amount of downside risk to that, in our opinion. So that's that's what we stick to. I really don't like momentum or concept investing. I don't. I just don't see any logic in momentum um, because you have no entry point, which is a reference point, if no exit point. Um, and if I don't understand anything, regardless of how much work we do at the company level, if we don't understand it, we will not put any of our clients' capital into it. If we can't understand what it's worth, we will not put our clients' cap capital into it. And I'll give you an example. I've never ever invested in, invested. I've never speculated in cryptocurrencies. I, I never, you know, as far as I'm concerned, I don't understand it, it has no intrinsic value. Um, and probably the reason why, the nearest thing I can see in cryptocurrencies is basically investing in the tulip boom. So, I really, you know, that really underpins what we think about with regard to investing for our clients. And, you know, and the other thing is, and sorry, these are probably too long winded, these answers, Nick, but we as a team and myself are all invested with our clients. So we're completely aligned so that, you know, there is no gambling with our clients' money, I think. And capital preservation is at the key of that, is at the heart of that as well. Hopefully that's clear, Nick. No, great. No, no, no very clear. Th th thanks very much. So very helpful. So let's um, let's move on then to to, to the big three. And, and um, <laughs> I just want to start with, I mean, uh, first question really around 
I think uh, one of the, the topics of the moment and the next decade. What, what are the key issues you think we face in, in successfully navigating the, the energy transition and, and where do you see the most interesting opportunities? And, and then I guess sort of on the flip side, you know, what, what are the biggest risks um, from your perspective? Yeah, and it's, it's such an irrelevant question at the moment because, um, you know, the first key message I, I would probably give to everyone listening to this this podcast is, you know, we're in a net investment cycle for energy. We go through these periods where you have net divestment um, and you have net investment periods and, and energy equities perform well in net investment periods because the capital is increasing and therefore the cash flow is increasing and, and you normally get expanding return on invested capital. And that's what we're seeing across the energy transition and the conventional energy complex now, because you can see those companies are moving their business models as well. Um, but uh, I'll, I'll just mention a couple of things, though, just for this answer. And, you know, firstly, we have a problem with regard to energy capacity being very tight now. You know, that's whether it's renewable or whether it's conventional. And, and this is what's really underpinning this strong period of net energy investment. And this, um, the most obvious way to solve this imbalance is through a, a significant investment and ramp up of renewable energy capacity. I'm going to stress that because you cannot bring on a conventional field that quickly, but the, at the same time, for the first time in history, the desire to bring on a conventional field is really, really low from those from the integrated oil companies. So the best way to solve the solution is not through conventional capacity, it's through renewable capacity in the short term. And when I say short term, I mean over the next five to 10 years. Um, many people are concerned that the need to reduce emissions has taken a backseat um, as energy security is probably the top of the priority list for governments right now. Um, but, but we would argue that the two issues are still very linked and the investment rates in energy transition will only accelerate further from current levels and, and is definitely going to exceed, exceed expectations over the next five to 10 years. And, and the reason being is, you know, the carbon markets uh, are not really efficient at the moment globally because we don't have a global, uh, a global carbon market where you trade across border. Um, but you've got to look at conventional prices, whether it's coal, oil or gas, they're behaving like carbon markets, because what you're seeing is the high free cash flow being generated from those carbon markets is being redirected into the energy transition market. So, so to sum it up, Nick, you know, there's a huge amount of visibility of this investment period. So this is good. This is good for investors in the space. Well, sort of. Um, and I say well, sort of is because You've always got to look at path risk and you've always got to look at the volatility of those subsector flows. So despite the significant flow of investment, um, we would reiterate, obviously, this capital needs to be deployed um, across the entire value chain. So as an example, you need to source the materials for the, equip the equipment that go into this capacity. So steel, nickel, semiconductors have been tight, but this is improving finally. You need to deliver the equipment. Shipping has been unbelievably tight, and you know we've been very vocal on this. Um, but this has com completely opened up in the last few months. And we're actually, for availability for vessels for 2023, you've got full availability. 
you need to apply for a permit on a wind or a solar farm. And this is the biggest bottleneck we see in the energy transition at the moment. And I've been in, I've been lucky enough to be in a couple of uh, government meetings where they have recognised that permitting needs to be brought forward from five years back towards one year. Um, and this is a bottleneck that will take time to unwind because it's a staffing capability problem more than anything else. Um, you need to, uh, in order to facilitate the wind and solar farms, you need to upgrade the transmission distribution lines. So that's a lot of investment going in the ground. And then you also need storage systems in place, you know, to meet basically intermittent capacity demands, particularly as we develop the EV market. So the visibility of the investment, long-term investment, is unbelievably strong. I mean, you, you know, if you're, you're going to see investment rates at literally four to five times that of conventional capital expenditure on a go-forward basis. But the biggest problem is, is you've got huge volatility in the in the periods of when that investment is going into those individual subsectors. So now what we would say then is to summarise is you've got that visibility, but you need a diversified approach about where that capital is going to basically go across. Right, thanks. And maybe maybe just what one follow up to that one as well. I mean, there, there are times where that that part of the market, the energy transition market, has, has been sort of you now particularly hot. Uh, um, sort of a couple of years ago, certainly. I mean, how do you how do you think about that in in terms of this fund and, and sort of not uh, uh, you know an area that's that perhaps has got a, a ahead of itself in in the short term at least in terms of valuations. Yeah. So first, I'm going to reiterate, we're unbelievably disciplined with valuations. Yeah. So um, and. There's been different levels of temperature for that, that boiling over and, and hot, I would say. Um, there have been times when the solar sector has literally rallied 70, 80% and we've run out of upside on some of the solar names, which are core holdings. And that's, that happened just recently with the Inflation Reduction Act. The subsidies from the Inflation Reduction Act, we saw were priced into equities within about a three or four week period. That's the entire subsidy that was made available. And so what we did was we used that as an opportunity to trim back the positions after the rally. Um, and, and so, and as much as the outlook is fantastic, you have to be disciplined around that. However, we take the hot sector to the one that we felt was really boiling over, which is hydrogen. And we've been really, really pleased around our discipline on hydrogen. Um, fund managers never pleased with themselves, trust me on that. Um, but we've been really pleased because Hydrogen has been a very, very hyped, and it's almost like a bubble sector. It's been particularly in the small electrolyzer suppliers, which unbelievably competitive market. The margins are not visible there. The market's really not. Hydrogen's really not going to see acceleration in volume take up post 2030. Obviously, you're seeing good growth now, but it's on a really, really low base. And hydrogen is all about linking in industries like steel, manu steel manufacturing or cement manufacturing, so they use hydrogen as a source for their energy supply. That is not happening overnight. The other area around hydrogen, which is why we've not had a big weighting in hydrogen in the fund, um, is you've got to look at who, the, you've got to recognise who the industry leaders are. So it's not through lack of us speaking to the companies participating in the hydrogen value chain, the companies that will win and are going to succeed and will supply most of the volumes and have the technology capability in hydrogen 
are the conventional energy companies like BP, Shell and Total. There are even the oil field service companies like Baker Hughes, which will be providing the compression technology in hydrogen. These are companies already dealing in hydrogen markets and they're moving from grey hydrogen, which is obviously gas based hydrogen, to move, moving those markets towards blue hydrogen, which is hydrogen um, plus carbon capture and, and green hydrogen, which obviously comes through electrolyzers. So you have to recognise two things. You have to recognise when things are just overpriced, and that's what we've recognised in, in the hydrogen space on a pure play basis already. And second, you have to realise that these companies have a competitive edge and they just don't, Nick. That's the problem. Yeah. Yeah. Great, thanks. Well, well, you mentioned some of the, the um, more traditional uh, energy companies there. And, and, and obviously, you, uh, as, as you mentioned earlier, you manage a fund in, in the traditional uh, area. How, how do you think investors should think about investing in that area today? For, for some, this is... Uh, you know, energy transition fund would be the replacement, but you 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 manage on both sides. Just give give us a sense of of how you how we should think about uh, the the more traditional area from from your point of view. Yes, so we had clients come to us five years ago now and said they they don't want to invest in conventional. Some of them actually remained in the energy fund, but they saw this potential for the energy transition space to take off and. From a profitability perspective, we started to see that inflection start to come through. So you start to see the profitability take off. You had government policy pushing it. And we decided to launch a vehicle which was on a pure play basis, excluding fossil fuel companies. Now, the conventional energy space, you can now put into two buckets and sentiment for conventional energy has completely changed, I would say, in the last 18 months. And the reason being is you have certain segments within the, within the conventional energy space which are starting to transition their business models and this is essentially how we invest in our conventional energy fund and I'll, I'll give you an example um, let's just take the integrated space we don't own exxon we don't own chevron their policy on moving their business model is still i believe nothing short of non-existent um, you know it's the capital expenditure for exxon going towards renewable capacity or non-fossil fuel capacity because it could be in hydrogen it could be in carbon capture is basically less than 10 percent of their overall capital expenditure take total total and royal dutch shell and bp and gaup and repsol the european integrators are moving their business models and, and a large and larger portion of their strong free cash flow their overall capital expenditure now on a go forward basis is basically moving into non-fossil fuel capital expenditure so to the extent it's on average in Europe now is 33% of the entire capital but just to give you an idea of how big these companies will be in renewable capacity Asiona is a massive renewable energy generator in Spain you know it's the second largest in Europe one of the largest globally independently and they produce 20 gigawatts of 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 renewable power generation sorry they're targeting 20 gigawatts by 2030 total is targeting 100 gigawatts. These companies are going to dwarf the renewable energy sector um, it, you know, in, 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 in total when you basically add up all the integrated companies. So we've always said they're really part of the solution, not part of the problem. And I, I think, Nick, now this is really starting to be recognised by investors because you effectively get the renewable business for free, which is an interesting angle now. And You've got obviously now obviously the change of the taxonomy as well 
which to include gas. And gas is definitely starting to be recognised as a transition fuel. So another bucket we invest in is basically pure play gas producers. No Russian, just to reiterate. They're basically East Coast producers. But the third bit I just don't think is recognised by the market is that the oil field service companies are no longer calling themselves oil field service companies. They're calling them energy service companies. So, you know, so Wood Group, I'm going to use that one in the UK because everyone can relate to it. You know, they provide solar installation, wind, front end engineering, carbon capture and hydrogen solutions. That's part, that's their new engineering divisions on top of their existing oil and gas engineering divisions. Baker Hughes has 95% of the LNG, liquefied natural gas turbo compression market. It's, it's a pretty safe assumption to assume they will have a considerable market share of the hydrogen compression market on a go forward basis for green hydrogen. So, I mean, it's these companies are literally transitioning their business models. Fugro, you know, runs a seabed survey for a wind farm um, because they used to run, or they still do run seabed surveys for drilling offshore. So you need to employ Fugro for that seabed survey. And now it's 60% of their overall business. So the whole of the conventional energy funds that we manage have transitioning business models, but for very, very good value. So I think there's a role to play for these companies, but it requires a bit of discipline around how you engage with these companies so you can see that transition playing out. Perfect, great. That's uh, very um very insightful thank you um i'm going to now move uh, i think move across just to uh your 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 newest fund uh the um the sustainable food and water fund and just it's sort of interested there what why have you chosen to your, your team to branch out into that area in particular and um obviously energy transition you see is a great opportunity how, how should you how do you compare and contrast that to um in you know, the food and water and uh uh, again, how, how should investors think about that space? Yeah, so there's a couple, there's a couple of questions I need to answer there in that one question. I think the first one is, is you know, do the team have the capability to branch out? Have we, have we taken our eye off the ball with the energy transition fund and the energy fund? So I know that's not what you asked, Nick, but I really <laughs> want to address that because you have to stick to your knitting and you have to stick to your capability. So we have no intention to launch any other funds. Uh, the food and water fund has been, uh, the food and water sector, sorry, have been uh, a clear interest for us on the team. Um, and I'll give you the reasons why in a minute. So what we did is we've hired in um, talent and capability and Felix Odie on the team is a specialist in this area as well. He knows the sector unbelievably well. So it was a natural, um, solution for where we had clients approaching us and saying look we have um, other funds which focus on just water and just food um, you know you've got nutrition funds and you've got pure water funds you know is this a viable area and what is the outlook for the sector so we went away and we looked at the food and water value chain and how it's completely linked now and when you look at the energy transition sectors you've got Electricity generation and transportation, they make up 52% of global emissions. Food and water makes up 26% of global emissions. So what we know in the energy transition sector is that we start to see this investment rates, these investment rates pick up considerably. We're starting to see from a very, very, very low base, because particularly in the food industry, it's 
not a love sector, we're starting to see investment rates pick up. And, you know, there are two main problems facing the food and water system, which you can sum up, which you know that things have to change. You know, first is we need to produce um, a huge amount of food and water between now and 2050. You know, we're going to have to basically uh, 70% more than basically 2010 levels. You know, and the global population is on its way to nine to 10 billion. So the amount of food we have to produce in the next 30 years is going to be the same as what we've produced in the last 5,000 years of human history. So we have a problem with yield maxing out on land availability and land availability is going to go into reverse as well. So, so that's the first problem is availability of food and water on a constrained resource base. And the second is we have to do it on a more sustainable basis, which is obviously linked. You know, the current way we produce food and water is not sustainable. We have a negative feedback loop. Um, which is making it harder and harder to keep food and water production flat, let alone grow it, grow it in line with production, with population growth. So net net, what does it mean? It means we need to address greenhouse gas emissions. We need to address water usage. We need to address land usage, preservation of biodiversity. I know that's a buzzword at the moment. Physical waste management and and obviously promoting positive nutritional health. So all of this is basically how the entire value chain is starting to change. And as I say, we're starting to see investment rates pick up. So, you know, one question you may ask is, OK, is this is this being launched at the top? Are we basically pushing this investment to people? You know why it's a hot market? Well, firstly, it's not a hot market at the moment. These are very, very unloved sectors. Any fund and i say fund that's offering you a nine percent free cash yield and trading on around about six and a half times cash flow trust me that's not a hot hot market because that's trading at a significant discount to the broader market i.e around about a 40 percent discount the, the the investment opportunity and this is not a fund plug just to be clear the investment opportunity for investing in the food and water system um, is that you're going, you're investing in really, really boring companies that are really have typically had low earnings growth. And because investment rates are inflecting and picking up so considerably, the low earnings growth goes to effectively 15, 20% per annum earnings growth. And this is not priced in by the market yet because it, it's, it's not going to happen in one year. It's happening in, over the next five years. You're going to start to see much, much higher growth rates. So we don't think we've we've launched it um, too early. Uh, sorry, too late. Apologies. We, we, what we do believe is what you'll start to see is, is when the energy crisis settles down, you're going to start to see a lot and lot more government attention go on to effectively food security and basically the sustainability of the value chain. So it's a bit of a long-winded answer, but it was really to say, I, I, I do think this has multi-decade legs to it. But let's be clear, our track record in the sector so far is only about one and a half years. So we need to prove to investors like yourself that we can do, pr apply exactly the same investment process and it's it sustainably generates those decent returns. Great, thanks. And yeah, I, I, I guess I, I've always had a slight scepticism around um, thematic funds in terms of uh, sort of 
buying at the top and um you know the launches uh, sounds like for this uh, certainly for this fund that they uh, uh, as you mentioned with some of the uh, the, the numbers there certainly not uh, you wouldn't put this in the in the uh, the hot category uh, so to speak but uh, more the more the undiscovered as uh, as yet i think definitely i think that's a good summary uh, i think it's more undiscovered at the moment uh, you know because when people think of food and water funds sometimes they think of just like beyond meat and stuff like that and we haven't had an investment in beyond meat you know and it's we could we could never get um that concept investment to basically screen with with regards to valuation upside i mean the company has a huge funding gap as well um, what we're looking at is basically leading companies like veolia for example in france where they're already part of you know, the waste management and water system and what they're seeing is investment rates just continue to tick up and up and up you know we're in, in also in companies like yara where it's a traditional conventional fertilizer producer where they're changing the manufacturing process to have electrolyzed based green ammonia to basically produce the fertilizer where and it makes sense for them because they can charge a higher price for that that fertilizer because it's green ammonia based so these are transitioning business models from, as I say, really, really boring companies. That's the best way to describe it. Great, thanks. Well, that's um, uh, really useful. I'm, I'm now going to turn to just three very quick fire questions, maybe uh, things that might uh, help our listeners uh, become better investors or give them food for thought, uh, excuse the pun. Um, so uh, first one, um, you mentioned a number of uh, great investors you, you, you worked with early in your career. What do you think your your best piece of investment advice you've been uh, given that, that perhaps has stuck with you more than uh, others over the years? Yeah, and, and I've, I've worked with and I've obviously sat and done many meetings with, uh, co-meetings with lots and lots and lots of good investors as well. And, and what you tend to do is you meet them for the first time and you just start to, when you ever see articles written by them, you gravitate towards basically reading that article whereas before you you know it may have missed you may have missed it uh, may have or just glanced at it the one the one thing that I've finally worked out after as I say almost 27 years uh, and I've certainly worked it out um, in the last 10 years is patience and process I just think patience is the one thing that is just so inconsistent um, in the investment world and what so if you model a company's net worth through thorough and conservative forecasting you have to have patience because there is no guarantee the market will recognize what you think is the right intrinsic value within a specific time period that you've set whether it's 12 months or 36 months. I, I don't, I, for some people, I don't think they have an investment period of that long, to be honest. So I, I think it's a huge amount of arrogance on my part if I assume that I can assess the value of a company and the market all says, well, what we're going to do now is we're going to take the value of that company and bring it to what Mark thinks it's worth. I mean, there's no way that's going to happen. So I think if you put the working at the, at the company level and you have patience, um, then I, I think it will hold true. And, you know, I hear and I've seen people say that an investment isn't working after just a few months and then they sell it. And I'm, I'm thinking, but if you invested in a company and you took ownership stake in a private company, 
you wouldn't behave like that. You know, you wouldn't you wouldn't care about any near term implied price volatility. You know, if you if you saw the business growing and generating free cash flow, you'd support management and definitely have a longer term view with regard to that value creation. And you want to hold it. And that's how people behave in the private market, you know, particularly smaller companies where they take that stake and they're willing to let it grow. And obviously they have a longer term exit strategy if they want. But some people go all the way through cycle with these smaller companies. So I think we just have to forget sometimes that when we buy a stake in a company, we become owners. And it's not just about buying and selling a share, a share price. And, and that's the bit that's the bit that's underpinned by patience. And if you have a disciplined valuation process, which shouldn't really deviate much with one quarter's cash flow, then that probably gives you the opportunity to crystallise that value over time. Great, great advice. Thanks. Uh, sort of connected to that, actually, uh, I think my next question was, um, what, what do you think is least on investors' minds today that, that uh, they should be considering but but isn't priced in? And, and perhaps to your point that uh, uh, sort of unrecognised at the moment. Yeah, I had a good, good think about this question. Um, and I, I don't think it's not on investors' minds, but I think interest rates, I think, are misunderstood still by the market. And you say, well, what do you mean by that, Mark? That's, how can you say that? The, you know, we see the interest rate cycle. It's increasing at the moment. What I, what I don't think is appreciated by the market, and I've seen this before. I, I saw this particularly in 2016 in the conventional energy market. But I'm seeing it now across many, many subsectors is I don't think investors are aware that there are two debt markets now starting to open up. So as you get in, as you go through an interest rate cycle, um, I think interest rates, firstly, because of the inflationary pressures, which I don't think are going to go away in the short term, because I still think we've got a huge amount of wage inflation coming through. And I do think that input pricing isn't necessarily going to come back as much as people think. Um, I see that in energy markets, in metals markets, and obviously in the food complex as well. But now we're starting to see wage inflation pick up as well. Everyone's seeing that in the UK right now. Um, so what this means is that interest rates will stay potentially a little bit higher than people expect. But that's not really what's happening in the debt market. In the debt market, what we're seeing is companies that are on three, four, five times debt to EBITDA, so stretch balance sheets, we're starting to see them really overpay on debt rates. So what am I saying? I think what's mispriced at the moment is marginal companies that don't have a secure balance sheet, that have a funding gap. I think investors could be caught out by that bur interest burden on the business because we look at companies and we look at companies where the interest rate, the interest burden is literally removing all of the profitability for the future. So you never pay down the debt. All they're doing is financing the debt. And we're seeing interest rates as high as 14 percent for debt being raised in by some of these marginal companies. Now, obviously, we're not investing in those, but I do think this is something that is not necessarily priced in the market right now, Nick. Mm, interesting. Yeah, food, food for thought there. Thanks. Um, right, I'll just finish on my last one. I'm still, I'm uh, uh, always trying to upgrade my uh, my bookshelf to uh, uh, look more intelligent than, than I am. And and so uh, I wondered <laughs> if you had any uh, sort of uh, uh, any book that particularly stood out for you, in, in investment related or, or perhaps otherwise, that uh, 
uh, you might recommend to uh, to me and and uh, and listeners. Um, so I read a lot of autobiographies, um, and I also read a lot of like lifestyle books. I re- I love Malcolm Gladwell, for example. Mm-hmm. I just like his books. Mm-hmm. You know, Outliers is a, should be a go-to book for everyone. It just shows you the it epitomizes um, what, what hard work and dedication does in terms of outcomes. Um, and I love autobiographies because um, you, you you see what drives people. I mean, I, I recently read um, Shoe Dog, which is the book about Phil Knight, Nike. Uh, I thought that was excellent, but also sad at the same time. You see the sacrifice that people make. But the best book after 26 years of investing, um, the best book is not it's not going to be very ed- educational for you, Nick. I think is The Old Man and the Sea. Uh, okay. Okay. Hemingway, <laughs> and the reason being is, uh, it comes back to so many things you should and shouldn't do in investing, mm. about obsession, and and all of the all of the external factors that can take away what you've basically strove for, and you get distracted by those external factors because you're so driven by that one goal, and you have mm. to take into consideration everything else around you. Yeah. So it's a bit like. Um, the reason I like it is because I say to my team, you have to have work-life balance. So if you're so focused on work, you'll sacrifice, for example, the family balance. And 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 so my family is really important to me. So I think the best book I've read, that, looking back over time, is basically The Old Man on the Sea. And it, but it's not educational in that sense. No, a fantastic recommendation, nonetheless. So th- thanks very much. Well, Mark, th- thanks so much for your. Uh, uh, for your time today and, and speaking to us on, on the big three. Um, it's been a really interesting discussion. Um, finish there. Uh, thanks everyone for listening and um, thank you as ever and stay safe. <laughs>